Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello, I'm John Elledge and this is Skylines, the Cinematic Podcast. In the early hours of the morning of the 14th of June 2017, a fire broke out in a tower block in, in West London. In the end, some 72 people died in the Grenfell fire. And what, what was really tragic about it, I think, was that a lot of them died following the safety advice they'd been given to kind of, you know, if you stay in your homes, you will be safe. That just turned out not to be true. A whole load of recriminations followed. There was talk about whether the, the problem was the cladding. There was much discussion of like poor quality maintenance of council housing and the fact that this had happened in, in the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea, which is the single richest local authority in the whole of, of the UK. The whole thing made it feel like this was kind of, you know, this event was sort of symbolised a tipping point in our national debate about inequality and, you know, what we what we owe to each other as citizens. And two years on, I think it's fair to say that almost nothing has been done to, to actually deal with any of the any of the problems that, that the Grenfell fire highlighted. No one's been, been particularly held to account for it. My guess today thinks that the fire is sort of symbolic for a whole other set of reasons. That it also kind of typifies problems that have been going on in the, in the housing sector for a lot longer than the last two years. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Stuart Hodkinson. I work at the University of Leeds and I've been researching different dimensions of the housing crisis and housing privatisation for over 12 years. And I've just recently written a book called Safe as Houses, which tries to bring together what happened on the night of the 14th and the early hours of the 14th of June and link it to different aspects of how housing is managed, maintained, produced. So let's start with... with Grenfell. I mean, what did the event sort of mean in your mind? Well, I remember waking up that morning and my partner said, there's been this terrible fire. It's a council block in London. And I, I kind of said, well, you know, that's not much of a surprise, is it? Obviously, at the time, I didn't realise the just how many people were going were gonna to die and what the implications of it would be. But at the time, I wasn't really, I was kind of very not surprised at all. I got a text message that morning from a resident on another council estate in London who drew attention to the fact that the company, the main company that was involved in, in the Grenfell refurbishment, was also a company that had been refurbishing homes on her estate and they had been raising similar problems over many years with the quality of the work, the attitude of the contractors, 
the fact that the local authority just did not take any interest in what they were saying, regularly passed them around different contractors. And, you know, she was just kind of like saying, oh my God, this could have been us. We could have been, we could have been burned alive. We could have been killed. She obviously was devastated for the people involved, but she was making the links. And so that's what it means to me. When that disaster happened, and it obviously it's ongoing, the ramifications of it, it drew attention to the fact that there are council estates, other social housing states, private developments all over the country that will have some kind of, I think, fundamental safety fault line, some, some huge weaknesses in how those construction projects are taking place, which renders those residents and those homes potentially, well, the home's dangerous and the residents potentially their, their lives at risk. And that's what it continues to mean for me. I keep looking across the revelations that keep coming out. You know, every week we get another tower block that's got some kind of flammable cladding, some kind of poor compartmentation that's been, that's been done or has been broken during refurbishment works. And it just seems to me that we aren't even close to the almost like beginnings of opening up the scale of the, of the dangerous work that's been done over the last 15, 20 years. I mean, I think one of the things that I found most haunting about the Grenfell story was afterwards it emerged that there were posts on, on like the, the community forum basically saying, you know, we are worried that this kind of disaster could happen because of the systems that are in place. To, yeah. I mean, I, I guess my question is, you know, we need to be careful not to say it was the fault of a specific contractor, it's the fault of a system, mm, right? Mm. So given that it's a systemic problem, would you have found those kind of posts on community forums for any council estate because, you know, this is it's this wide, widespread? Yeah, sort of... that's, a really good, that's a really good question, a really good point. So the Grenfell Action Group had been blogging about that refurbishment scheme for years and in plain sight, all the evidence was there and no one paid any attention. If you go to any regeneration scheme, any refurbishment project involving a group of residents, you will probably find a blog, a website, a Twitter account that is making allegations, asking for help. And before Grenfell, no one was paying a blind bit of notice to any, any of this. After Grenfell, suddenly we are almost like over overtaken. Like it's a kind of incredible saturation point now of the number of people coming forward saying... This happened to us, this happened to us now. It points to a systemic problem. And I think the systemic problem is not easy to sort of say, well, it's, it started here, this is, why, this is why it is the way it is. I think you have to go back many decades and start to see this kind of unravelling of what effectively emerged in the post-war era of a kind of a control and a regulation of the built environment where there was more of a priority around the safety of buildings and the regulatory systems and inspection processes that were created and evolved did a good job or did a better job than they did maybe do now of ensuring that homes, developments, construction is safe. And there's a bit of a paradox here. In some respects, we've never had you know higher regulations and higher standards of the built environment. And yet We've, we've also never had, I think, or haven't had for a long time, this kind of era of self-regulation, the system of self-regulation, where the very people, the very companies and, and actors that are benefiting and profiting from construction, regeneration and so on, are effectively regulating and monitoring their own work. So when we talk about the systemic issues, one of the main systemic faults is that we've allowed people who profit from development to actually effectively mark their own homework, to effectively sign off that they have 
met building regulations, that they've met contractual standards, that they've met safety standards. That happened over a period of 30 to 40 years under under neoliberal policies. So, OK, I mean, this surprises me a bit because I, to be blunt about it, I assume the problem was going to be money. It's that councillors do not have the money to spend on this stuff and when they do, they don't necessarily want to prioritise this over other things. And because, you know, because of a phenomenon called residualisation, council housing has gone from being, you know, a tenure for everyone to being a tenure of last resort. Mm. And it's, you know, people just don't care about council tenants because they're poor, basically, is what I thought was going on here. I'm surprised that we're instantly into regulation. Yeah, yeah, I think because, let's be clear, austerity, cuts and how residents and, you know, council tenants in particular are treated and stigmatised and seen as almost like an underclass of, of people not to be cared about. That's definitely a factor. That's a factor in any regeneration scheme that I've looked at. But I think when you've got now lots of brand new private developments all coming forward, pe- residents, wealthy people, people who've bought flats in new developments, pointing out hundreds and hundreds of defects in the building, pointing out that their homes are worth nothing and they can't sell them. They couldn't get a mortgage now to move or someone couldn't get a mortgage to buy their flat because of the defects, because the cladding's combustible, but also because of so many different things that are problematic with the way the thing's been built. This is not just about class and it's not just about austerity. I think it's about how the built environment is regulated. And in my my own research, I was looking specifically at these PFI schemes. So you have council estates being taken over by groups of private contractors and the whole point of PFI actually we, we think of it as a way of hiding money off the off the public accounts of kind of transferring long-term debt as into service payments that we make to contractors over time and that hides public debt but the other point of PFI though is something we don't often talk about which is it's a model of self-regulation you've got all these contractors who are given contracts by the main contractor, the special purpose vehicle, which takes over the council estate or takes over the school hospital. And then you think, well, who's checking the work of the contractors? Who's checking the work? The special purpose vehicle, the one that's got the contract with the public sector, they, part of their contract is that they will self-certify, self-monitor, self-regulate their contractors. Now, of course, building control, local authority building control, will play a part in some of the con- some monitoring some of the construction if they choose to go with local authority building control. But they can also choose other contractors that are approved inspectors. You don't need to scratch the surface to s- very far to see a lot of very cosy relationships between, you know, the the regulatory world mm. and these companies. So there's a whole sort of set of interests. There's the whole set of I think competing and conflicting interests that are in as part of just just basic regulation which which has gone very badly wrong because we've failed to separate who's going to actually monitor from who's doing the work it's got become far too cozy and Mm. friendly between developers and regulators i should spell out for international listeners that pfi stands for private finance initiative it's a kind of public private partnership arrangement that was very popular with the last labor government Generally, it's thought because it meant you could spend money and not keep it in your current account, basically. I used to write about PFI quite a lot back in the day. And one of the things that always struck me then was it sort of didn't matter how badly the big firms like Capita or Serco could screw up. Or Carillion. Yeah. These guys would always get contracts because, you know, there just weren't enough. The market just wasn't competitive enough. Mm. There just weren't enough other players out there. If you kind of, like, removed all the companies that have massively screwed up, 
you didn't have a market anymore. So it undermines its own argument that, yeah. that you know you can get competitive pressure working in your favour. Yeah. There was no competitive pressure in, in so much of the tendering and procurement of PFI contracts. You know, there was if you just look at who got the housing contracts, it tended to be two main consortia that had mm. their kind of preferred contractors. They got most of the contracts. There was no real competition there. And, you know, residents would say we, we were kind of steered to kind of be really favourable and think that this this contract was the better one. We should go with them by by the council officers as well. I mean, the idea of self-regulation is kind of... It's not as ridiculous as it necessarily sounds because, like, if you kind of make it someone's job to, like, you know, meet a certain standard, but then if they turn out not to be meeting that standard, you can come down on them like a ton of bricks, then you could sort of see it working. So why is there no enforcement mechanism here? I mean, it's one thing to mark your own homework, but it's another thing to, like there not be any penalty to sort of giving yourself too many marks. Yeah. If you see what I mean. No, absolutely. So, again, PFI embodies this idea of the, like, the kind of... that contractors, private companies, will take the risk. You know, if they, if they make the mistake, if they don't obey the law, if they don't build a, a quality project, they'll be punished. In my research on these, on these PFI schemes, the contractors don't get punished. They don't get punished because, again, remember, there's these layers of... There's little layers of self-monitoring that go on. So when, when the local authority is looking at the performance of the contractors, they're getting a spreadsheet and a report from the very contractor that's, that's effectively in charge of doing the work, saying, we have once again exceeded all of our performance targets. We're at 100% on this, mm. we're at 95% on that. It's all fantastic. So the local authority doesn't then go in and say, right, we're going we're gonna to see if, if you, what you're saying is true. They accept the word of the contractor. Is austerity, or, or not even austerity in the, the sense of the term since 2010, but just the falling kind of council budgets mm. and expertise, yeah. is that a factor here? Because once upon a time, like, councils had massive in-house housing yeah. teams, yeah. and they would have had the expertise to kind of look at those numbers and go, this is nonsense, you're just talking rubbish. Whereas now, they don't necessarily have that, and being a council housing officer is a very different job. Absolutely, there's no, there's no doubt about it. But that's, but that austerity isn't, isn't again, isn't the, yeah, isn't the starting line. Predate. I think you have to go back, again, 1984, all the way forwards from 1984 onwards, we see waves and waves of gradual uh, hollowing out of local authorities' ability and capacity to be the local police force of the built environment. Okay, Now, what are they doing? Local authority building control departments are competing with the private sector for contracts. What will they be competing on? Is it going to be quality? Is it going to be like rigour? Are they going to be going around over the, the, behind the backs of every single builder and say, you can't do that, you can't do that, that's right? They're going there to help get those developments signed off as quickly as possible. So the requirements on, on, on local authorities and other approved inspectors from the private sector is much lower. The expectations are very low. So that's why you can have contractors who effectively know that they're never really going to get properly checked up and monitored and told, you can't do this, this needs to be completely redone. They, they operate in this an environment where they have carte blanche to kind of cost cut, cost cut, cost cut, profit maximise, and you know, maybe once in a, in a blue moon they might get, might get caught out. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. 
So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So just uh, interrupting that conversation, do you have, once again, one of our Ask the Experts segments with, with uh, Heather Policy, Paul Swinney at the Centre for Cities. We've got a very important conversation about housing that we're going to have, about a, a new report the Centre for Cities is putting out with all sorts of shocking figures in it that's highly relevant to the topic of this podcast. Unfortunately, that report is not published till next week, so instead we're going to talk about the Advanced Manufacturing Park in Sheffield and pretend that there's some relevance to the topic of housing regulation, because that's fine. Hello, Paul. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? I'm good. As ever, like, I'm sure the, the listeners are marvelling at the quality of the planning that, that goes into this podcast. <laughs> well, it's certainly going to be the case that the next Axley Expert is going to be fantastic, but this one's going to be great too. Yes, yeah. Well, I have high hopes for it. So in Sheff- Sheffield has a thing called the Advanced Manufacturing Park, which is kind of a sort of world leader in, in that kind of thing. Sheffield is also, I think I'm right in saying, the, the font of a better word, poorest major city. It's the poorest of the core cities in the UK. What's going on there then? How's it got this amazing manufacturing park and why is it not feeding through into kind of you know, wealth uh, for all the lovely people of Sheffield? Well, that's a great question, John. That's exactly why we decided to, to have a look at this piece because we thought... Oh, What's going on here? Because it doesn't seem to, you know, those two narratives seem to, to clash against each other. So, Sheffield has got the Advanced Manufacturing Park on it. Uh, in particular, it's got something called the Advanced Manufacturing Research Centre. Now, people in policy get very excited about this because what we've seen is that big companies like Boeing, Rolls-Royce and more recently McLaren have all invested in the park and are located there. So it's like, well, what's going on? You know, this is a great thing. We must try and sort of get it elsewhere. And all of a sudden we're seeing advanced manufacturing parks popping across the country. We say, okay, well, let's have a look into this in, in more detail. So well, what is it? Well, the Advanced Manufacturing Research Centre, that's the key bit of it, is a collaboration between the University of Sheffield and industry. And the key thing is it's a big shed 
on the air between Sheffield and Rotherham, where they've got this open innovation model. So these big companies come in, share ideas, information. It's like what happens in city centres, you know, these sharing of ideas and, and little bits of new information. But it's happening in a big shed. It's like a massive sand pit. They come up with whizzy new stuff. There's no patents allowed, but sort of the companies went into the spirit of it and going, well, actually, we understand that, but it's, it's the value of having this face-to-face interaction and being able to, to share information and, and ideas. Um, and they come up with, with fantastic new innovations, and that's why the park has then been very attractive to pull in these sorts of companies and has been a success as a result. And yet, as I said, Sheffield is, is not, not thriving. I mean, it's a very fine place, Sheffield, but it's not... If you go to many of the big core cities, what you often find is they have these these like very prosperous city centres, but then you get a few minutes outside them and you can see there's actually still real poverty there. Sheffield, I don't think you really sort of feel the prosperous city centre either. Like there's a lot going for it, but it does not feel like a place that is that is doing particularly well right now. Why is why is the success of the advanced manufacturing park not translated into the economic success of Sheffield? It's really interesting one. So, so yes, Sheffield is definitely produces below its weight. It's got a number of issues. Its city centre in particular doesn't perform as well as, as other big cities, as you say. And it was actually a bit of a, a head-scratcher, I think, in terms of thinking about, well, why is Sheffield being able to even attract in these big manufacturing firms? Like, what is it that Sheffield's offering to these, this sort of handful of businesses that other places aren't to be able to attract them in? Why? And the, the two things seem to be that it's the open innovation model in the, in the research centre that was set up by the, by the university. That's a key distinguishing factor. And it's also the, the link with the university in terms of being able to supply new graduates or new postgraduates, of which Great British Bake Off fans will, will know already. Raoul, who won the, won the show last year, he was a physicist and may still well be a physicist at the, at the Advanced Manufacturing Park there. You love that fact. <laughs> it's a great, it's such a was, great fact. Before we started recording, he was so excited <laughs> like, to talk about the Great British Bake Off. Anyway. It's just like urban economics all of a sudden hits, hits popular culture. It's yeah. amazing. If you get Love Island in, I'll, I'll buy you a drink. <laughs> well, that's the next task the expert, isn't it? So, so um, stay tuned for that, listeners. So what that means is that there is actually, despite sort of skills in, in sort of the broader Sheffield City region not being fantastic compared to other areas, there is at least this pipeline coming from the university. Now, that pipeline is small, but that's because the uh, Advanced Manufacturing Park is also small. So yes, innovation happening. Yes, getting lots of, of uh, policy interest. Yes, it's having a positive impact for Sheffield, but it's only around about 500 jobs. Right. So in the, in the context of the broader Sheffield economy, it's very, very small. How many people are there in the Sheffield city region? It's so about a million, isn't it's, it? You're, you're talking certainly seven figures in terms of the yeah. number of people that are there. So, so 500 jobs, not that many, really. It's, it's a drop in the ocean compared to the size of the overall economy, which in part talks to them why I think you can have these two competing narratives, that you've got this very successful park, but actually it's set in sort of the context of perhaps a, a less, less successful economy. But the good news, I think, is that, you know, Sheffield has developed this. You know, it is an engine for growth. It's an engine for creating new jobs and high skill jobs in particular. It, on its own, is not enough to turn around the Sheffield economy. There needs to be other interventions too, which I know the, the Combined Authority and, and the local authorities are thinking about, but at least it is a step in the right direction and it has developed something which is trying to change the, the structure of Sheffield's economy. Okay, so I, I want to talk briefly about like Sheffield itself at the end, but let's let's stick with the advanced manufacturing part for a second. Who is benefiting from it? If there, are, if it is creating these magnificent benefits, but they're not visible in the economy of Sheffield, where are they flowing to? Well, this is a, a really important question. I think when it comes to thinking about who's going to pay for it, what it means for local and national industrial strategies, with which lots of people in local government are concerned about at the moment. So. 
that there are jobs in the Sheffield City region that are, you know, creating new innovations that are high paid and high skilled, this is a good thing for, for the Sheffield economy. It means that you've got, all of a sudden you've got career opportunities there to attract people in, to keep people there, and clearly the people who've got those jobs are benefiting too. But when you look at where those innovations are being applied, they're not just being applied to, to Sheffield. You know, they're then being applied. Rolls-Royce, for example, applies some of its innovations up at its plant in Sunderland. Airbus, you know, some of the new innovations and whizzy new things that are happening in Sheffield go and applied in its plant in Broughton in, in North Wales. You know, it's, it's a very much a case, particularly in manufacturing, that where the new ideas created are not where they're then going to be applied because the ideas part of the process and the manufacturing part of the process tend to be separated. Now... From a Sheffield point of view, that means that it's not capturing 100% of the benefit of what's going on. It's probably capturing the best bit of it because it's the new ideas stuff that is occurring in Sheffield rather than sort of the more sort of routine, just putting stuff together. But it's not capturing 100% of the benefit of the process. But that's important from a policy point of view because the question then is, is that doesn't mean that it should be the, the Sheffield or Rotherham local authorities or the Sheffield University or the Sheffield Combined Authority that foots the 100% of the bill. Mm. That if the UK government wants this to happen, because it's a good thing for the national economy and we should be encouraging it, it also means that national government is going to have to put some skin in the game to try and sort of encourage some of this stuff too. Innovation happens in places. Places are dead important for this process and it wouldn't happen if we didn't have this clustering of activity in one, in one place. That's really important for national policy to recognise. But it also doesn't mean that then place should, the places where it occurs should put 100% of the bill because the spatial impacts of this are quite spread. It also strikes me that if the, the real benefit of the Advanced Manufacturing Park is kind of a national centre of excellence, the idea of other cities copying it feels like a bit silly. Like it's probably not actually you you will just kind of dilute those benefits rather than rather than grant them to other cities is that I think that's, that's fair assessment I think that's very fair what we've seen is a number of cities off the back of seeing what's happening in Sheffield create their own advanced manufacturing parks which amounts pretty much to we've identified some land on the edge of town we're going to sort of loosen planning regulations to get some new sheds built and here presto there's just going to be loads of advanced manufacturing there two things the first is that you're not going to get this activity occurring everywhere. You know, very much the fact that it has to cluster in particular places to get innovation going means it's not going to be spread out everywhere. And the second thing is I think a lot of places probably haven't taken heed of why it is that Sheffield has been able to, to capture some of these benefits. So if it's places in the greater southeast, if it's somewhere in Oxfordshire, for example, then, you know, it's going to occur because what Oxfordshire's got is lots of high-skilled workers and actually has got a number of other high-skilled businesses there already, particularly in motorsports. So they've got a number of natural advantages that can try and sort of pull these businesses in. Perhaps in places elsewhere in the country with weaker economies, they haven't got lots of high-skilled workers, they haven't got lots of, of other sort of innovative manufacturing businesses already located there, and they haven't also thought about what the university angle is in this and trying to get the universities involved. And so then it means that there's a much less compelling reason for advanced manufacturing businesses to go to those weaker economies. That's where Sheffield has really broken the mould, is in particular, it seems like, by getting the university involved, by having this open innovation model in, its, in the research centre being placed in its advanced manufacturing park, that's been the difference to attract those types of businesses to a, an economy of the profile of Sheffield compared, say, to an economy of the profile of many other cities in the north of England. So just to wrap up this section, as we said at the start, Sheffield, I mean, I feel, I feel I'm going to get letters from Sheffield now, I know, but like Sheffield, Sheffield is kind of punching below its weight. 
why? What's going on there? Why is it why is it struggling compared to the, even other cities you'd probably sort of bracket it with like you know Leeds or, or Newcastle or whatever? Why is Sheffield struggling? It comes back to a lot of what we've spoken about before in terms of what are the benefits that different places offer. If you're a high skilled business looking to stick your pin in the map, you're looking for high skilled workers principally and then um, you know, what we would describe a knowledge network of other high skilled businesses. You know, and you see this in the centre of Manchester, or the centre of Birmingham, the centre of London, loads of high skilled service businesses in particular, clustering within the centre of those cities, despite them being really expensive places to, to, to do business. Sheffield does not currently offer those benefits to the same extent as those other places, and so it loses out to those other places in terms of tracking this type of investment in. So what it then needs to do is improve skills principally, improve the attractiveness of the city centre as a place to do business, attracting those, those service businesses uh, in particular, as well as high skill services businesses. And until it, it cracks that and makes a more compelling offer than what other places in the UK offer, then it is going to struggle to a greater extent. I know that you know, policymakers at local level are thinking a lot about this, you know, are trying to put these plans in place, but fundamentally that's why we've seen the performance of Sheffield over the last 10, 15, 20 years that we have compared to other places. And what we need to see is actually Sheffield punching above its weight in the future, not only for people who live in and around Sheffield, but also so it makes a bigger contribution to the national economy as well. Is it? Are we, I mean, are we sure that raw geography isn't a factor here? I mean, Sheffield is kind of... The, the thing that makes it beautiful isn't in the middle of a lot of uh, the very fine hills, but it means it's quite a pain in the ass to get to compared to a lot of other cities. It's not on the major north-south or east-west transport links. Despite the fact that Manchester is, what, 30 miles away? It takes hours to get there because there's, you know, the Pennines in the way. Is that a fact too, do we think? You look sceptical. Yeah. You're just, just going to repeat your spiel about skills. <laughs> well, this is the big thing about, about how Northern Powerhouse Rail has pitched itself. Is that, you know, all of a sudden, if we link Sheffield and Manchester together, they'll both perform much better. I just, I'm not clear as to why, why a, a business would come and locate in Sheffield because the links to Manchester are better when we've got a fundamental challenge around skills. And if we look at, you know, particularly looking at transport connections, yes, transport connections between Sheffield and, and Manchester aren't great, but che- connections between Sheffield and Leeds are pretty good, especially by road. You know, it's very easy to get between the two. Connections between Sheffield and London, from a real perspective, it's just over two hours. I see posters advertising this all of the time, and I've done that journey many times myself. You know, the connections to the capital are very good. And indeed, connections to other cities in the east of England, by road in particular, are, are pretty good too. So I'm sceptical about that argument. I really don't think it's going to be a, a real sort of de- 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 decisive factor in terms of why businesses would lo- locate there or not. Okay, so on, on the whole, you think skills matter more than trains? Yes. Well, that's a tragic end to this week's segment. Thank you very much, Paul. <laughs> Thank you. Please mind the gap between the train and the platform. What's the solution? Like, can we get back from from where we are now to a point where we have generally decent, like, mechanisms to kind of regulate housing? Because as you as you already said, it's not just social housing, is it? No. Like, some of this some of this also applies to privately built homes. Absolutely. The solution is obviously not straightforward. I mean, I think what we need, obviously, is some kind of long term strategy. Of, of a government that would be interested in regulating the built environment, be interested in taking on developers and and the construction industry. And that's not straightforward, right? So I think in the short term, we've got to make a decision. Should local authorities be, should they return to being the kind of monopoly of, of controlling and regulating the local built environment or not? 
I know there are people who are very good, you know, building inspectors who would say no, you know, local authorities shouldn't be, shouldn't have the monopoly. But I think we need to have some kind of body, locally and nationally, that is independent from construction, from the interests of construction, that is enforcing standards and laws and regulations. So that's what we that's what we need. And getting to that place is not easy because, you know, twenty odd years or more where local authorities have increasingly competed with more and more private contractors for building control work means how do you reverse that kind of situation or how do you how do you enable or remove or reduce the conflicts of interest within the system so that's but that's one of the things that's got absolutely got to happen another thing again is the idea of health and safety and we have a health and safety executive which is all about health and safety at work in the workplace it's had its budget slashed so what does it do now? It basically now can't really investigate the kind of things that we might want the health and safety executive to, to investigate quickly and, and, and urgently. We need a health and safety executive not just for, for workplace incidents, for occupational health. We need it for residential health and safety as well. We don't have that body. Which body do, local, do the residents go to? Who can they go to? If you're a worker and you think something very dangerous is happening in your, in your workplace, you can report it to the health and safety executive. If you're a resident and you see something very dangerous is happening in terms of construction, the health and safety executive is not interested. Mm. They say, well, we can't really intervene. It's not our area of regulation. Trading standards, conflicts of interest between trading standards and the local authorities that may well be the landlords involved in this work. So, again, we've got lots of conflicts of interest. We need some kind of national, independent regulatory type body and system that is going to cut through some of this stuff that people can go directly to. I think it's absolutely ridiculous that residents have to go to court to fight months and years in court to try to get their homes made safe. That seems to be completely balmy. But there's a problem here, isn't there, which is like, you can't really get people excited about regulation. It's not. It's just not I'm, something I, that's I, ever. I'm very excited of. about regulation. I think there's more of us. I out can there see it in your eyes yeah, right now. But they're, yeah, they're coming alive. I know. Yeah. yeah. But like generally speaking, this is a problem in many more areas than this. Is it just? Mm. It's much easier to get people going. Yeah. Why do we want another bloody bureaucratic body mm. than it is to go? Yes. What we want is decent regulation of this particular sector. So, like, how do you sort of win mm. that more political debate? Mm. Well, I think the debate, in a way. Is, is being won. I think there's been, since Grenfell, and Grenfell was, you know, obviously, you don't want a tragedy to, to actually bring about some kind of change. You don't want it to have to be like that. But I still think that we're in a, we're in a, a period of time, we're in a moment where what Grenfell has done is it's brought out thousands and thousands of people into, into, the, into housing struggles and, and struggles for, for housing justice across the country. There's no doubt about it. All those groups that used to be kind of like mumbling and whinging and not getting anywhere, they've been empowered by the fact that now you have to listen to people, what they're saying. You can't just push it under the carpet. So there are lots more people involved in housing politics now than there were a few years ago. There's been an absolute explosion of groups, leasehold campaigns, tenant campaigns. There's the rise of ACORN taking on the the private landlords you've got generation rent which is doing good work as well you've got all kinds of like new campaigns for council housing there's loads of there's loads of activism now and i think again i always think it's about how do you create the umbrella structures that bring those different groups together to be an effective political voice i know there's a big fight going on for some kind of national tenants voice which was 
we had very briefly a national tenants voice in the in the, in the end of the Labour government of 2008, 9, 10. It was abolished by the Conservatives. There's been no effective representation of tenants at the national level since then. There's real efforts to try to get that back. One of the problems, of course, is that the housing association sector is now dominant in social housing and is being identified and named and shamed for all kinds of practices um, that we saw, saw at Grenfell. So it, and they don't necessarily want their residents to be very empowered on these issues. Um, so obviously there's a, there's a pushback on that. But I'm quite hopeful that, you know, Labour, the Labour Party, for whatever else is going on with the Labour Party at the moment, its housing policies are starting to move in the direction and they're gaining momentum on... And they've moved, they've really moved to the left. I mean, you know, if you looked at Labour Party manifesto under Ed Miliband and you compared it to the last one and you compared it then to the Social Housing Green paper that they produced and their latest announcements, you know, they're moving. They're moving, every announcement is moving. And they're doing that because they're seeing that there's actually a big political pressure going on at the grassroots level in constituencies across the country for for just a completely different way of looking at housing. We should be wrapping up, but do you want to just very quickly tell us uh, a little bit about the book? Yeah. People might be able to get it. Yeah, so how can they get it? Well, they can they can go on the Manchester University Press website and they can find it there. The book um, is called Save Us Houses, and basically what I'm trying to do in that book is make the links between Grenfell, all of the revelations that came out about how the residents were treated, and different regeneration schemes, particularly in London, done under this kind of model of self-regulation, which was PFI, that was a particular model of regeneration that was used. And again, just show how everything that was present at Grenfell is present in every single regeneration scheme um, that, that residents go through. They get the same accountability vacuum when they're trying to seek redress. They've got nowhere to go. There's no regulatory body that they can appeal to. The, the court processes are incredibly difficult to deal with. It talks about the profiteering that gets that's, that's, that goes on in these schemes, the amount of finance that's being effectively extracted from the public purse, and is offshored into tax havens from the from the ultimate owners of some of these PFI companies. It also tries to set out some kind of agenda for for, for change, which really ultimately boils down to. We need policies, we need, we, need, we need governments that are interested in the decommodification of housing. We've got to very carefully take out speculation from housing. We've got to, we've got to somehow think of housing as a social service again and not as an asset to be speculated on. And you know, if we can go anywhere near to that kind of agenda, then again, I, just don't, I think that in the future, things like Grenfell just won't happen. Stuart, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Skylines, the podcast from City Metric, the New Statesman City site. It was presented and recorded by me, John Anage, and produced by Nick Hilton. You can find Skylines every two weeks on iTunes, Acast, or whatever other app you use to get your, your podcast. And while you're there, why not leave us a nice review to, to tell other people we're here? It, you know, it really helps people discover the show, and I'm a megalomaniac, so the more people I can get listening to this, the better, really. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.